want to preface what I share with you by giving honor to the fact that this revelation and insight does not come from me in the slightest. It comes from my dad and others who God revealed this to, and yet I do not want to allow something so crucial as this revelation to grow dormant in our midst. And I think that if you will listen and you will stick with me, God is going to show you something that I dare say most of you have never seen before, at least not on the level that He wants to disclose it. Amen. How many of you remember the conflict that was taking place in the 15th chapter of the book of Acts? We know that in the 10th chapter, the first Gentile had become a believer and been filled with the Holy Spirit and baptized. Amen? And that created a certain tension. People wanted to know how were these Gentiles going to become part of this, up to this point, Jewish movement. The ecclesia, the church, was a, a branch of Judaism. It was not a Gentile thing. Scholars tell us it had been approximately 15 years from the day of Pentecost until Cornelius received the Holy Spirit. There's discussion about that, but some would suggest about 15 years from the time of Pentecost until the time of Cornelius. And so then, immediately, certain conflicts developed. How far should the Gentiles go in adhering to the law that the Jews were living by? We know that when Peter was at the house of Simon the Tanner and the Lord was prepping him to go visit Cornelius the centurion, a sheet was let down and all these four-footed creatures, unclean animals, was, were put before him. And a voice came to him saying, Arise, Peter, eat. And what did he say? I have never eaten anything unclean. So already this many years after the ascension of Christ and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the spreading and growing of the church, this man is still very much Jewish in his customs. And so when the Gentiles started coming in, some people said they needed to be circumcised, which was the sign of the old covenant inaugurated by God for Abraham and instituted permanently for all of his people. You can look at Genesis 15 and Genesis 17 to see that. Whoever is not circumcised, let him be put out of my covenant. So the circumcised believers had a very hard time imagining how anybody could become part of this movement and not share in this common covenant of circumcision. It seems obvious to us today, but it was not obvious in those days. And the 12 apostles, along with the leading apostles throughout the church, gathered, they gathered at Jerusalem to have a council and to seek the Lord as to how the Gentiles should be integrated. Their question was, how do Gentiles integrate? And God spoke to them. He spoke through the apostle James and he spoke through the apostle Peter. And when they had unanimity as to what the pattern should be, they sent letters 
with the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Barnabas. They prayed for them, and they were sent out by the Holy Spirit and by the leadership of the church. Wouldn't you have loved to have been a fly on the wall during that council and to understand how they came upon the will and Word of God? And in the midst of this, James stands up and he makes a declaration that will be the key for our teaching tonight. And I want to read what he says. First Simon had spoken, and after they had stopped speaking, James answered and said, Brethren, listen to me. Simon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. With this, the words of the prophets agree just as it is written. And he commences to quote from the prophet Amos. After these things, I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen. And I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it so that the rest of humanity or mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says Yahweh who makes these things known from long ago. Therefore it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. So James took these words from Amos as a template, as a prophecy, as a direction for the time when God would bring the Gentiles into his covenant. And the key marker of this history-changing event is that the Gentiles will come at the time when God restores what? The tabernacle of David rebuilds it and restores it. Amen. He does not say the tabernacle of Moses, nor does he say the temple of Solomon. We know that a temple more glorious than Solomon's was standing when James made this utterance. This is not what it refers to. But this tabernacle of David was unique and special. And it was a prototype of the New Testament church. Amen? It was what Jesus referred to when he said to Peter, You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. I will build. So the Lord is saying, I will rebuild the tabernacle of David. This is the house, this is the church that we're supposed to be part of. What were the differences between David's tabernacle and the Mosaic tabernacle? David's tabernacle had no veil hiding the presence of God because the ark. We are told that the Mosaic tabernacle in Exodus 40, 21, it says he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up a veil for a screen 
and screened off the ark of the testimony just as Yahweh had commanded Moses. Moses' tabernacle had a veil in it that screened off, that obscured or hid the ark of glory from the children of Israel. Amen? Amen? But David's tabernacle had no such veil. We're told that in Moses' tabernacle, there was a partitioning wall of hostility, to quote Paul, that divided the believers, the worshipers. Paul says, Jesus himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity, the hostility. Moses' law allowed for only the high priest to access the holy place once a year. It says in Hebrews 9, 7, But into the second, the holy place, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. Amen. So we have three markers, a veil, one person accessing once a year, and a dividing wall of hostility. These are three key differences between the Mosaic tabernacle and the Davidic tabernacle. But James does not say that he will restore the tabernacle of Moses. He says he will restore the tabernacle of David. Amen. Hallelujah. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. The church, in James' telling of Amos' prophecy, is that tabernacle that is being built. In verse 17 of Ephesians 2, it says, And he came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have... Can I get a witness on that word? We both have, who is the both? The both refers to the Gentiles and the Jews. In the Mosaic tabernacle, the Jews didn't even have access. Only one man from among the Jews had access, and it was the high priest. But here he speaks in plural terms. Through him we both, that is Gentiles and Jews, have access. How? by one Spirit Amen. to the Father. Amen. Amen. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. The household of God was the, the Jews, Israel, Jacob. Amen. But he says, you're citizens now of this Nation, this holy nation Peter would talk about. 
verse 20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So now he starts talking about a building. Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building is being fitted together and is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God through the Spirit. Thank you, Jesus. And there are plenty of cross-references that you can look at there, but I'm, for the sake of brevity, I'm going to keep moving on. Where does God dwell in the Old Testament? Let's look at Exodus 25, 22. Therefore, I will meet you, I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims, which are upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. So God is going to speak to them from this place. 1 Samuel 4 and 4, So the people went to Shiloh, and from there they carried the ark of the covenant of Yahweh of hosts, who sits, Yahweh of hosts, who sits above the cherubim, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. Where does Yahweh sit? Above the cherubim. That's the place from which he speaks. 2 Samuel 6 and 2, And David arose and went with all the people who were with him to Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, that name is capitalized because it's called by Yahweh's name, the very name of Yahweh, of hosts, who is enthroned above the cherubim. Where, is he, where does he sit? Where is his throne? Where does he dwell? 1 Chronicles 13, 6, David and all Israel went up to Baalah, that is to Kiriath-Yarim, which belongs to Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, the Lord who is enthroned above the cherubim where his name is called. It was a place of his name, amen. Psalms 80 and 1, O give ear, shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock who are enthroned above the cherubim, shine forth. Amen? Amen? So the place between the cherubim was called the what? The mercy seat. In Hebrew, the kaporet. Amen? It looks like kaporet, but it's kiporet or something like that from which we get the word yom kippur. Kiporet, and it means atonement. Mercy seat means atonement. Amen. That's where God is sitting, not in hatred, not in wrath, but in mercy. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. And that place of his dwelling is called by his name. That place is called by the name of Yahweh. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. But what in the New Testament... What is becoming this mercy seat? Where is the place that God is dwelling now? We just read it in Ephesians 2.21. In whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are being built together into a dwelling for God by the Spirit. Amen. 
You are where God wants to dwell. The church is where God wants to sit. Now the church is becoming that place, that mercy seat where Christ is enthroned, where he is reigning through his people. Amen. Revelations 21 and 1 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. So what is this new Jerusalem? It's the bride adorned for her husband. And what is the bride? Okay. A bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold. Behold means look at this. Look at this new Jerusalem called a bride. Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. And he will dwell among them. And they shall be his people and God himself will be among them. Amen. A child will be born to us and he will be called what? Emmanuel. Which means what? God with us. When they said, who can be saved? Jesus said, with man. If you're just by yourself and God is in heaven and you're on the earth, it's all a big impossibility. But with if God is Emmanuel, if he's with us, with God, all things are possible. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. This tabernacle of David is one of joyous praise. What distinguished the tabernacle of David from the tabernacle of Moses was not just the three things that it lacked from the former, but it was above all a house of worship, a place of praise, of sacrifices, of praise, song, joy, worship. And Peter referred to the temple that we're supposed to be part of in the same manner. He said, and though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him. You rejoice greatly with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Amen. Glory is a property of the temple or tabernacle. It is not something indiscriminately scattered among whomsoever. It is the presence of God, the Shekinah glory of God resting on his house. Amen. If we're his house, then we have joy inexpressible and full of glory. Amen. What happened when they finished the tabernacle exactly according to design? It was full of glory. Amen. Amen. Can you enter this new tabernacle apart from joyful praise? Is that possible? Come on now, is it? No, it isn't. We're going to get into this shortly. We are told that what we are supposed to be having in the church is supposed to reflect what is happening in heaven. What was Jesus' seminal prayer? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What now? Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. How? On earth as it is in heaven. Even the glory of David's tabernacle that we're going to describe tonight 
that God intends to be erected and completed on this earth through praise and worship, that tabernacle is still but a reflection of what we're going to experience in heaven. But John opened the windows of heaven and showed us what praise and worship look like in heaven so we know what to emulate down here on earth. Let it be here on earth as it is in heaven. Whatever we see in heaven, we're supposed to reflect here on earth. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. In Revelations 21 and 1, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and earth passed away. I saw the holy city. We've read this already. Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. I will dwell among them. They sh I shall be their God, and they shall be my people. I will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Revelations 5 and 9 through 12 says, And they sang a new song. So if you know what they're doing in heaven, you know how to worship on earth. Do you hear that? Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to God. Amen. How many priests were allowed to go before the ark of Moses' covenant, of Moses' tabernacle? How many times a year? How many priests were allowed to go before the ark in David's tabernacle? Unlimited many. And how often were they allowed to be there? Constantly. Amen. And about us, does he say that there will be a special class called the Levites? Or does he say of the church, you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God? Amen. Amen. Does Peter say there's a handful who are a part of a holy nation, a royal priesthood? Or does he say to the plural you, the assembly of God, you are a holy nation, a royal priesthood? Hallelujah. Amen. The church of the 20th and 21st century has set up a tabernacle where a special handful go before God and intercede for the people. But the church of the end times and the church of the New Testament and the church spoken of in Revelations is a kingdom of priests where all can go before the ark and worship in the presence of God. This is not a handful. This is all. This is everybody. You have made them a kingdom of priests. The thought had never crossed anybody's mind that an entire nation would be priests. Amen. We have a high priest who ever lives to make intercession on our behalf. And yes, he accesses that place, but we also have access by one spirit to the same Father. Amen? Amen? Why? Because we don't trod on an old and dead way, but a new and living way. Amen? Those cherubim represented the angels that prevented people from coming into the presence of God. Where do we see those angels first appear in their guarding, preventing capacity? In the Garden of Eden, where they walked with God in what? 
the spirit of the day, the cool of the day, right? And when they decided to tap into the suspicion, the pride, the lies, the sin of the devil, what happened? Two angels stand at the gate with flaming swords saying, stand back. These angels are called guardians of God's honor. But when he says he has opened a new and living way, he is saying that he has separated those angelic forces, the Elohim of God's wrath, in his atoning sacrifice. He has parted the way so that we can have access to the Father through the Spirit. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Amen. Revelation 7 and 9 and 10. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne. Hallelujah. That's what the ark was. It was the prototype of God's throne. Amen. Amen. But he says there will be a great multitude of every tribe, nation, and tongue. So great no man could count it. And they're going to be there. Not one high priest. Not a handful of special people. But a great multitude standing there before the throne of God. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out. He does not say, and they cried out. He speaks in the present tense as if this is already happening and still happening somewhere in other realms and places beyond our imagination. And they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb. Revelations eleven fifteen. Then the seventh angel stood, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever. Revelations 19, 1. After these things, I heard something like a voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to God. Revelations 19.6, and then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters. He repeats himself. Amen. And like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, they were saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God is mighty and he reigns. Thank you, Jesus. Now listen to this. If this is what they're doing in heaven and it sounds like the voice of of many waters and it sounds like a great multitude and it sounds like the clap of thunder. What is it supposed to sound like when the church comes together to worship God with all their heart? Like thunder and water, like a multitude in worship. Hallelujah. It's supposed to sound like hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Worthy is the lamb. Bless the name of the Lord. Thank you, God, for what you've done. That's what it's supposed to sound like. And it says in Revelations 15 that God handed out musical instruments to these regenerate, immortal worshipers. It wasn't enough that they'd made it to heaven. It wasn't enough that they told him he was everything. He said, I want you to add some music to that praise. And he handed out harps and lyres and said, let's worship together. God wants worship. He wants songs. He wants adoration. 
And I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had been victorious over the beast and his image, and the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God, they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God. The Almighty, righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Amen. Hallelujah. God gave them harps when they got to heaven because God likes music. He likes praise and song. Amen. He likes prayer and thanksgiving. Now we know what it looks like in heaven. Our Father, who art in heaven, may your tabernacle of praise be established on earth as we now see it is in heaven. Amen. Your kingdom come, your will be done as a reflection on earth of what exists in heaven. Hallelujah. We know what Jerusalem descending is. It is the church. In Hebrews 12:22, it says, You have not come to a mountain that can be touched. Amen. Ellipses. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. He tells people in a church that they have come, not will come, but have come to a heavenly Jerusalem. Earthbound mortals come in their earthbound existence, in their mortal time, they come to a heavenly place. Amen. You have not come to a mountain that may be touched, but you have come to Mount Zion. When he says it can't be touched because your flesh can't get its hands on God's promises. Your carnal nature, your ambitions, your pride, your machinations, your rationalizations, they can't get their hands on God's promises. But if you would be born again of a new and living hope, amen, then you would have access by one spirit to the same Father. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels. These angels that used to prevent now minister to the heirs of salvation. Amen. They're all over the body of Christ helping us out in ways we don't understand. Jesus, on the night he was born, what did the shepherds see? They saw the heavens open and Jacob's ladder descend, bridging the distance between heaven and earth and saying the two could be connected now. Hallelujah. Amen. And what was going up and down? What was surrounding that great staircase that symbolized God coming down to earth and crawling inside the puling baby in Bethlehem? What were the creatures all over that ladder, that stairway? Angels of God. Amen. And what did Jesus say to Nathaniel? Behold an Israelite in whom there is no guile, right? And he says, oh, you know, how do you know me or whatever? And he says, I saw you when you were under the terebinth tree. Amen. He says, you are the king of Israel. You are truly the king of Israel. And what did Jesus respond? He said, oh, you will see greater things than these. You will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Amen. Because when the self-same spirit that left heaven and filled Jesus 
came inside a multitude, the body of Christ was born. And this veritable elevator shaft, this Jacob's ladder, was laid down at Bethel, the house of God. Amen? And Hebrews tells us that the angels of God are ministering to the heirs of salvation. So they're there. Whether our eyes can see them or, they, I, or we can't, do you believe Peter saw them when he sat in the prison cell that night and somebody struck him on the side and said, wake up because the church is praying and I'm ministering to the heirs of salvation. I'm coming and going on this ladder between heaven and earth. The angels that used to prevent now facilitate your access. As praises ascend, glory descends. Hebrews 4, 16, Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. How many people were able to approach the throne in the days of Moses, the throne that was above the cherubim, one once a year? But when Jesus went there, he opened it up for everybody. And he said, you can come into the presence of God. Amen. He, Psalms 22, yet you are holy, O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us have full assurance. Amen. Let us have our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, which means all that crooked, narrow-minded suspicion. Now all saints can stand at the ark, the intimate presence of God, and commune with their Creator in the most intimate way through the Spirit. All of us. Jesus said this is eternal life, not that somebody can mediate your relationship with God for you, but that you can know the only true God in Jesus Christ whom he has sent. John 17, 3. In 2 Corinthians 3, 14 and 18, he says, But their minds were hardened, for until this very day at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted. The veil wasn't just torn from the temple when Jesus died. The veil's on people's hearts. And they've got to turn to God and see what he did and accept what he did, amen, enter into what he did, and then it'll be ripped away from their hearts too. But what does that veil do? It keeps them from the presence of power. It keeps them from the throne of mercy. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. But their minds were hardened. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. I want to draw your attention to the fact that the removal of the veil is tied to the Spirit, and that the liberty of the Spirit takes away the veil. Because the veil hides the glory. The veil hides the presence of God. Do you understand? It hides that place of power. It says, put the ark behind the veil. Amen. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with unveiled faces, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Spirit. So he says the veil can be on your hearts, and the veil can be on your face, so that you can't see it and you can't feel it. Amen? Amen. But God could take that veil away if you would turn to the Lord. Amen? 
Thank you, Jesus. The veil is torn at the cross, and Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit, and behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. Matthew 27.50. Amen. I'm going fast, but it's because I need to. I'll give you an intermission here in a minute. He quotes Amos, Amos 9, In that day I will raise up the fallen tabernacle of David and wall up its breaches. Patch its holes is what that means, the holes in its walls. Amen. And, and I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom. The remnant of Edom. What does Edom signify, guys? Edom signifies what? The Gentiles. But there's a remnant in Edom. And by rebuilding the tabernacle of praise, the remnant of Edom is going to return. They will possess the remnant of Edom. Amen. And all the nations who are called by my name, declares Yahweh, who does this thing. We're circling back to the tabernacle because we want it. We know what it looks like in heaven. And we know that that's the ultimate fulfillment. Let's look at a couple more details of how it looked on earth when it was David's tabernacle of praise. It doesn't describe the fullness. Heaven describes that. But it helps us clarify what this church is supposed to look like that becomes the dwelling place not only for the ark and glory, but for God himself. Amen? So 1 Chronicles 16, 4 through 6, he, David appointed some of the Levites as ministers before the ark of the Lord. This is a phenomenal thing. Would you agree? Even to celebrate and to thank and praise Yahweh, God of Israel. Now we know that David was not a cavalier fellow when it came to the ark. When he started off by bringing it back the wrong way, something terrible happened. Do you remember? I won't go into the details of that, but you know Uzzah died, and God told him it's because you didn't bring it back according to due order. He told the the priests that. And so they, they weren't just throwing things away. God was giving David a new dispensation and a prototype of the kingdom of God that was to come. And Amos says when David's concept gets finished the Gentiles will be saved. Amen? Amen. David doesn't say, I want to appoint one high priest to minister once a year before the, the ark. What does he say? He appointed some of the Levites as ministers before the ark of Yahweh, even to celebrate and to thank and praise Yahweh, God of Israel. Asaph, the chief, and the second to him, Zechariah, then Jael, Shemariamoth, Jahil, Matithaliah. Eliab, Benaiah, Obed-Edom, and Jael with musical instruments, harps, lyres. Also, Asaph played loud-sounding cymbals. And Benaiah and Jehaziel, the priests, blew trumpets continually before the Ark of the Covenant of God. Were there any musicians in Moses' tabernacle? The Ark had never heard musical instruments before. But David, after seeking God, he brought in this whole band to make music, to sing, to shout. It's a totally different atmosphere. Can you agree with that? I know that the, the men, around 4,000 male singers, but they could only sing 800 at a time. That was just the choir. So they had to kind of take turns. Y'all know what that's like. <laughs> Not one, but many priests. First Chronicles 16, 37. 
So David left Asaph and his relatives there before the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh to minister before the Ark continually, as every day's work required. And look at this verse 38. And Obed-Edom with his 68 relatives. Obed-Edom, also the son of Jeduthun and Hosea as gatekeepers. Now, who was Obed-Edom, guys? His name says it. Worshipper from among the Gentiles. This was the first time a contingent of Gentiles had had this unlimited access. It was a shadow of the dividing wall coming down. Can you see it? So you know why James goes back to that when he's thinking about how to get the Gentiles into the church. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Obed-Edom, worshiper among the Gentiles. You know where he was specifically from? A place called Philistia. First Chronicles 13, 13, it says, So David did not take the ark from the city of David, but took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. Obed-Edom was a Gentile Gittite from Philistia. But God was so showing them in an atmosphere of praise, in a tabernacle of worship, the walls come down. There is no veil. Everybody has access. Gentiles and Jews can come together. Hallelujah. When Jesus describes the end times, he says nation will rise against nation. And that word is ethnos, will rise against ethnos. Race will rise against race. And yet there's something else that's supposed to be happening. There's a place where all the walls are coming down. Amen. The walls between us and most importantly between us and God. And the presence is there. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Second Samuel. <clears throat> then the king said to Ittai the Gittite, Why will you also go with us? Return and remain with the king, for you are a foreigner and an e also an exile. Return to your own place. So we know how the Gittites were seen. Foreigners and exiles, go back where you came from. But that's not what happened in the days of David. He said to this Gentile, Obed-Edom stood for you and me. He represented the Gentiles in that crowd. Asaph was there and Obed-Edom, and not just him, but 68 of his, of his family. Worshiper from among the Gentiles. Thank you, Jesus. What God was communicating through James was that the church of the Gentile and the Jew would be a church of David's tabernacle, a place of praise, a place of worship, a place without the dividing wall, without the obscuring veil, and a place where not just one but all, as the royal priesthood, could have access by one spirit to the God who sat on the throne, the throne that was becoming the church, the place where he wanted to dwell. Hallelujah.